Hello, yeah, great. Let's, let's go again. I'm not going to be put off. We need God's help this evening. So, dear Lord, thank you that you're here. Thank you that this is what your word to us. And Lord, we really need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand. So please come, Holy Spirit, and speak into each of our hearts. I pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this evening, we're, we're continuing in this series of talks on Revelation. And Revelation is not quite like most of the other books in the Bible. It stands in the tradition of apocalyptic writings, and it unveils for us, it draws back the curtain on what is happening in the spiritual realm and reveals how that affects our life on earth. And it does this using different ways of writing. Revelation's got letters in it, it's got prophetic writings in it, and it's got strange pictures of weird beasts and creatures, all sorts of pictures and imagery in it. And apocalyptic writings seldom give a chronological picture. They often go over the same subject several times, using slightly different pictures or metaphors to reveal a, a layered and deeper meaning. It was written, this letter, to churches in the first century in what's now modern-day Turkey. And they were experiencing both the joy and the difficulty of living in a culture that was quite hostile to their faith. And Revelation was written to challenge them, but also to comfort them. And it continues to do that for us today, to challenge us, but also to comfort us. And our comfort is that despite present experience, what everything that we see, in a world of conflict and in a world of suffering, that God is in control of history. In the end, Christ will be triumphant over all that is evil. He will judge his enemies and he'll save his people. And we will inherit the joy of everlasting life. And the challenge for us, at, for the original readers, and the challenge for us today is to do what John constantly urges us to do in Revelation is to remain faithful to Jesus and to patiently endure. So this evening we're looking at chapter 20 and in it we're approaching the end of history. The next chapter, chapter 21, tells us a time is coming when Christ will return. He's coming back and he's going to claim his bride, the church, that he loves, and we will enjoy eternity in the most wonderful community with him. There's going to be no more suffering, no more death, no more pain, no more crying. The old, the old order of things will pass away. But how is that going to happen? How's that going to happen? In previous chapters, we've read so much about battle and conflict, um, James was referring to that in his, in his video, as Satan works to lead people away from Jesus and deceive the nations and people to turn away from God. So how can Satan be stopped? 
Is there going to be a judgment? How will that work? And what about this period of a thousand years mentioned at the beginning of chapter 20, usually known as the, the I have such difficulty saying this word, the millennium. How does this fit into the overall picture? And as, as I speak on this chapter, I do it with some trepidation. There are some things that we can be certain about, and there are some things which are disputed. And I'm going to start with the things we can be certain about and then move on to the things which are more disputed. So firstly, the outworking of Jesus' victory on the cross over Satan will be completed and there will be, that will be the end of his influence for all eternity. Secondly, there is going to be a judgment and we're going to look at what chapter 20 says about that. And thirdly, we're going to look at the millennium. And, and this is an area where there's much dispute and disagreement amongst Christians, and even, sadly, division in the church. And there have been lots of books and commentaries written about it. Now, I'm going to give a brief overview of the different views, but it's important for all of us to approach this with humility and grace towards one another when we do disagree about these things. So here goes. Firstly, the final outworking of Jesus' defeat of Satan. That's in verses 7 to 10 of chapter 20. Now we can trace through the previous chapters of Revelation the devastating effect of evil on our world. In chapter 12, we saw Satan pictured as a dragon, and he leads a rebellion in heaven, and he is cast down to earth. And when he's on earth, he deceives the nations, he deceives people into going against, going against God. And he gives his people power to make war against the saints, the followers of Jesus, and to conquer them. So in Revelation 20, we're getting to the end of this. We see the final outworking of that victory of Jesus on the cross coming to its final completion. In verse 8, we see Satan going out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. And, and that's where the re there's this reference to Gog and Magog. And what John is doing is referring back to the Old Testament, chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel. And here, Gog and Magog represent all the people who oppose God on earth. And in this, in this picture, there's a massive attack on the people of God all over the world. And wonderfully, John says that God will protect his people, and he calls them the city he loves, the city he loves. That's, that's us. us. Satan is not successful in the attack, and this is where we get him thrown into the lake of burning sulfur along with the beast, where they will be, there, they, they will be out of it for all eternity. And John is writing these things to his original readers, and we have them now to reassure us that evil and Satan will not have the last word. They will completely come to an end and be removed from God's good 
creation, the new heaven and the new earth. So that's the defeat of Satan. The second thing, judgment. In verses 11 to 15 of chapter 20, John moves on to speak of judgment. And, and this is a sober subject for all of us. We think of ourselves and we think of people we love. What is going to happen at the judgment? And John pictures God seated on a throne and the dead are raised to stand before the throne. And two sets of books are opened. And the first book has what, written in it what's been done by all the people. All the dead are judged according to what they've done. But then another book is opened, and this is the book of life. And Revelation 13.8 tells us that all the followers of Jesus belong to the Lamb, and their names are written in the book of life. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that for everybody who puts their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, their names will be written in the book of life. It's Jesus' obedience, Jesus' work on the cross, which is counted on our behalf, is imputed for us. We are seen by God as righteous, and therefore we will not suffer the judgment that comes on the people whose names are not written in the book of life. And verse 15 tells us that anyone whose name is not found in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. As we hear these words, we can feel really mixed emotions. We can feel, if we trust in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, that's, that's wonderful. I'm, I can look forward to this wonderful life for all eternity with Jesus. But many of us will feel a longing for that joy to be experienced by everyone we know, by other people. And it's right, it's right that we feel this. It's exactly what God wants. In 2 Peter 3.9, Peter tells us, the Lord is patient with us. He doesn't want anybody to perish, but for everybody to repent, which means, that simply means turning to Jesus. And our challenge our challenge is to be faithful and to share our faith, to support the, the, the work of the wider church in sharing the gospel and to pray for people to come to know Jesus. Now, what about this warning of the lake of fire? Do we take that literally? Well, there's no, there's no easy answer to that. It's not just mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's mentioned in other places in the New Testament, including by Jesus in the Gospels. But what is clear is that there will be a separation. The forces of evil and those who choose to live independently of Jesus will be separated from God. Now, these passages on judgment aren't designed to lead us to despair. John includes them because he understands that judgment is real. And in an earlier warning of judgment in chapter 14, this is when John calls his, his readers to patient endurance and to be, remain faithful to Jesus and assures them of God's blessing. 
We're going to go to this at quite a rate. So the next thing is the millennium. Now, this is covered in the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 20. And in verses 1 to 3, we see Satan bound for a thousand years and thrown into the abyss to stop him from deceiving the nations. Then in verse 4 to 6, John tells us of a kingdom of the saints, the followers of Jesus, who will reign with Christ for a thousand years, i.e. a millennium. Now, broadly speaking, there are four ways that people have interpreted these verses. And I'm going I'm to rapidly go through them so you can get, just get an overall picture. And, and Brian has really helpfully um, put together this slide. So I'm not going to sort of stick to the slide, but, but that, that might actually help you. So the first one, what he calls historic, I call classical, um, pre-millennialism. Now this is the view that takes the events described in chapters 19 and 20 chronologically. And on this view, that the um, a thousand, yeah, it's called pre-millennialism because Jesus returns before the, the millennial kingdom. So he comes pre-before. So Christ returns in power pre the millennium. Satan is deprived of his power and is bound. The Christian dead are raised. A kingdom of saints, believers, is set up to reign on earth with Jesus. And then after a thousand years, Satan re-emerges from his imprisonment and attempts to destroy the saints again and fails. And then there'll be a resurrection of the rest of the dead. And that's when the things we've been talking about happen. Now, the strengths of this view are that it was widely held by the early church. And it, and it does take the order of Revelation 19 and 20 at, at its face value chronologically. And it does take seriously the earthly return of Jesus. But of all the numbers in Revelation which are used symbolically in all sorts of ways, this is the only one which this view takes literally. It takes literally a, a thousand years. And there is really no unambiguous support in the rest of the New Testament for this view. The second one is dispensational premillennialism. Pre now, this, this is widely popular in North America. And it was most famously advocated by somebody called J.N. Darby, who was associated with the Plymouth Brethren. So if you, if you come from a Brethren background, it's likely that you, you grew up with this view. And it, it reached a wider audience, very wide audience, through somebody called Cyrus Schofield, who did some study notes to the Schofield Bible. And later on, some of you might have read some of these, um, the, some novels did a series on this view. So there's a series called the Left Behind series. I don't know if any of you have read those by Tim Latage and Jerry Jenkins. And that sold millions of copies. Now, this view divides world history into a series of periods or dispensations. And it will come at these dispensations culminate in the 1,000-year, the, the millennium reign of Christ on earth. 
And basic to this approach is a clear distinction between Israel and the church. The view takes is that the Old Testament prophecies will be fulfilled in the national history of the Jewish people rather than spiritually in the life of the church. And when God promised the descendants of Israel an earthly kingdom, they, they take the view that when Israel rejected God, they, those promises were sort of put on hold, postponed, and then the, the church grew, which was mainly a Gentile, non-Jewish church. And the precise details of um, dispensationalism vary, but there's a distinctive doctrine of the rapture, which is based on 1 Thessalonians 4, where before the millennium begins, the um, believers in Jesus are sort of whisked away secretly so that they don't have to go through the suffering that comes on the earth. Now, the, 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 I've got friends in London who take this view, and this, one of the strengths of this view is that it often gives people a real passion for evangelism and bringing, coming, helping people to come to know Jesus. But there are huge disadvantages, one of which is the word tribulation means suffering. And it's absolutely clear from the Gospels and from Revelation that when suffering comes, Christians aren't exempt for it. We're not whisked off to get out of that. We, we have to go through suffering with Jesus as well. And the New Testament writers assume that the story of Israel continues in the Christian community. For example, in Romans 11, Paul pictures the people of God as an olive tree where non-Jews, the Gentiles, are grafted into the tree. There's one tree. Keep, I'm going to keep going. Post-millennialism. This is the third one. This is the, the view that Jesus returns post or after the a thousand years, after the millennium. And that the kingdom of God is established before he comes in human history. There'll be an earthly kingdom established. Now, advocates of this view tend to anticipate the kingdom of God coming through evangelism and through social reform to make society better. In Revelation 19, Jesus is pic pictured um, in battle with the sword of the word of God. And post-millennialists understand that Jesus, when he talks of um, Jesus wielding the sword of the word of God, that is the missional outreach of the church, that the, 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 the kingdom will come through evangelism. And also in America, this, this, this mainly grew up in America, in, um, that not just evangelism, but also social reform. So people that you might have heard of, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney. Finney, um, Edwards was, was wonderful on evangelism. Finney was too, but also looking for the abolition of the slave trade, the um, promoting temperance, those sorts of things. And then later in the 19th century, this, these, this, these ideas were taken up into the social gospel movement, and they became detached from the ideas about the millennium. It was just more about the improvement of society.
And today, this, is, this is really is a minority position. But again, its, um, um, its advantages include that emphasis on evangelism and social reform. But its drawback lies in we, we are not seeing evidence of our world getting better and better and better. That is unfortunately not happening. So the fourth one, we're almost there, amillennialism. Now this was developed by Augustine in his great book, The City of God. And it's a widely held view today, and it's the one which I find most convincing. None of these views are perfect, but it's the one I find most convincing. And the word amillennialism doesn't mean that you, you, you don't believe in a millennium. It's just that it's, it's not um, a future period. And the a thousand years is taken metaphorically to refer to a long period, not an exact, literal a thousand years, in, in tune with the, the rest of the apocalyptic sense of time. And it's the time between the first coming, seen as the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So that's the time we live in now. We are living during the millennium. So what's the evidence for this, that we're now living in the millennium? Well, if, you, if, you, if you've got, got your Bibles, but I'll, I'll go through it quite quickly, some of the reasons. Verse 2 speaks of Satan being bound. In the Gospels, Jesus describes himself as being the strong man who binds Satan. In verse 3, Satan is prevented from deceiving the nations anymore. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we share our faith, so that the eyes of people are open to the good news of Jesus and no longer deceived. In verse 4, the resurrected martyrs and people of God are described as seated on thrones and reigning with Christ. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 2.6, God raised up in Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms to reign with Christ. And that is our present spiritual reality. And our challenge is to use the authority that Jesus gives us to advance the kingdom of God. And Revelation 20 verse 6 calls us to reign as priests of God. We are the priesthood of believers. We are called to be a holy priesthood, worshipping God and interceding for the nations. So the advantage of that view, obviously, is that by, by treating the millennium as in a symbolic way, it's more in tune with the rest of Revelation. And it is easier to fit this view in with the rest of the New Testament as a whole. But there are difficulties with all the views I've described. And it's, it's important for us not to lose sight of the wonderful truths in Revelation 20. Jesus is going to return. Satan is going to be overthrown. Evil and suffering will come to an end. And we can look forward to a joy-filled eternity with Jesus. So how do we live now in the light of these truths? The reality of judgment is a reminder to us to make the most of every opportunity to share our faith with the people we know and to pray for people to come to know Jesus. As we saw in 2 Peter 
Peter tells us the Lord is, is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everybody to come to know Jesus. And we've seen again and again in Revelation how John calls his readers to remain faithful to Jesus and patiently endure even though they're going to go through all kinds of suffering. And that's our challenge today as we face all the difficulties that we face in life and we see happening around the world to remain faithful to Jesus. And as we do that, we will give him glory. And as the writer of Hebrews calls us in Hebrews 12:2, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And we have the joy set before us of an eternity with Jesus. And we've got the joy now of experiencing the abundance of life, which he gives us in that close relationship with him, which he wants all of us to have and promises to all of us. Let's, let's pray. Dear Father God, we've, we've been looking at some really big things this evening. And Lord, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you love your world. Thank you that Jesus came for everyone. And Lord, I pray that um, as we mull over these things, Lord, you will bring revelation and comfort of your love for, for us and your love for the people that we know, for our families, our friends, the people we work with, for our communities. And Lord, we do pray that we will be used by you to help other people come to know Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we will grow in our love for you. And, and I pray, your Holy Spirit, you'll strengthen us to be faithful. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.